I'm Simone van Nivenhuizen, researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Since early 2017, there have been disturbing reports of the arbitrary extrajudicial detention of ethnic and religious minorities in China's Xinjiang province. This August, the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination said it had credible reports that one million ethnic Uyghurs are being held in internment camps. Former detainees have spoken out about their experience of being subjected to psychological and physical coercion in an effort to ensure their abandonment of religious traditions and beliefs in favour of loyalty to the Communist Party. Academic Adrian Zenz has called it the country's most intense campaign of coercive social re-engineering since the end of the Cultural Revolution. The Chinese government initially denied the existence of any kind of detention facilities in Xinjiang. More recently, however, it has claimed the facilities provide free vocational training to improve economic mobility of minorities and that they function as a counter-terrorism measure to eradicate extremist beliefs and behaviour among the Muslim population. But what does the evidence show about the function and scale of these facilities? Today, I'm joined by Fergus Ryan and Nathan Rusa from the International Cyber Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, two of the authors of the ASPE report mapping Xinjiang's re-education camps. Danielle Cave, another author of the report, unfortunately couldn't be with us today. Welcome to the program, Fergus and Nathan. It's good to Thanks be here. For having me. Why did you think it was important to undertake this research project, and what does it add to existing work on the internment facilities in Xinjiang? Well, um, I guess we felt it was important to uh, start on this project because we had seen that there was already um, a lot of great research going on about uh, the situation in Xinjiang. Um, you mentioned a Adrian Zenz earlier, and he did a fantastic job of looking through uh, a lot of documentary evidence, mainly uh, tender uh documents uh, that demonstrated that these facilities were being built. Um, then we also saw some other evidence um, being put out by a researcher called Sean Zhang, um, who I believe is a law student in Canada, um, originally from China. And what he had been doing is looking at satellite imagery, um, mainly using Google Earth. I, I'm I think that's right, Nathan, correct me if I'm wrong. And he uh, located a lot of facilities and did his best to link up those satellite imagery with um, some documentary evidence. And so what we wanted to do was get what Adrian had done, what Sean had done, and then what some other journalists working in China had done and bring it into a single database then adding on top of that our own original research to try and cross-reference these different points of evidence to provide um, a list where we could say with a very high degree of confidence that the faci facilities that we uh, look at in our report and in our database are sort of, you know, incontrovertibly being used um, in this um, internment camp system. One of the biggest things that sort of jumped out to me when I was looking at 
a lot of work by Sean Jung and Adrian Zenz was how many of these how many of these facilities were actively being constructed at the time of the Google Image satellite. So what I thought would be a very useful there a useful sort of data point to have in addition to all those points as well is to quantify the growth of these camps and how quickly they're expanding, how how quickly they're popping up in the landscape and how much bigger they're getting in the last in the last couple of months and the last couple of years. So that's another that's another reason why we sort of launched this project and tried to bring it all into a unified and complete database and sort of add a bit more to it. Yeah, that's that's right. Nathan, what Nathan um, in particular was really able to do was um, plot out um, the sort of square meter usage um, in these facilities and show how it um, had grown so rapidly um, in a in a relatively short period of time. So I guess that was the the key way that our report added value to the already existing research that was out there. Um, and we also wanted to um, make sure that our list was um, really rock solid so that when other journalists undertake their own reporting on the topic, um, it's an easy uh, way for them to sort of get a toe in to the, to the topic. And Nathan, just how much have these facilities grown in the last few years? So that's in many ways a bit difficult to measure because our data sort of looks at the building footprints and the number of stories and that sort of complicates things because this policy wasn't introduced until 2017. So a lot of those buildings were converted from previous use. So it's hard to sort of quantify the growth because we weren't, we weren't sort of willing to say this is the particular month when this facility turned from a school to a detention centre. But overall, including the previous conver converted um, facilities, we've seen a 465% increase in the size, in the sheer size of these, of these facilities since 2016. And in many cases, that pace seems to be increasing. Since the beginning of 2018, you've seen it almost double in size. Also, it's also worth looking, considering that our sample of 28 camps, so these were the 28 camps that we looked at that sort of we had enough proof to, to be irrefutable about that. But if you look at the whole collection and what we assume to be the total number, we would say that our sample probably captures a bit over 10% of the total facilities. And within that, in the last three months, so that would be um, July, August and September 2018, you've seen over 700,000 square metres of additional floor space being added which when you look at that, that equates to about a, about a FIFA-sized football field every day. And that doesn't include ground space, that only includes building space, which is generally dormitories, classrooms and teaching facilities. You mentioned that some of the sources that you relied on included uh, tender documentation as well as satellite imagery and studies that other academics or um, experts in, in these particular areas had already undertaken. Um, were there any other sources that really enabled you to prove that the facilities had expanded so quickly in such a short amount of time? It really was those two main sources of evidence, but we did um, really spread the net out quite wide and we tried to gobble up as much information as possible. So that meant jumping into Chinese social media networks and looking for evidence, um, videos, photos, 
um, and what have you. Um, also, you know, on Twitter and um, social networks that are banned in, in China, I'd include YouTube in that as well. So we looked at Chinese uh, language media reports and one of the um, most helpful media reports was one done by um, Phoenix News and they did a very long feature fairly early on in the piece about what was happening out in Xinjiang and their reporter went to a number of the facilities and we were able to uh, cross-reference the information in that report with other points of evidence from, um, from other sources to build up a, a, a bigger picture. And that kind of um, reporting that was happening in Chinese language, there was sort of a blip of that at the beginning until it became clear that the sort of censorship authorities in China felt that it would be better not to cover the issue at all. And one of the really great things um, that we've been able to see um, as the, the sort of cumulative effect of all this research that has been done by researchers around the world is that China has been forced into a position where, you know, they started out complete with a sort of outright denial that this was happening um, and more and more they're being forced into a position where they have to first admit that it exists and now they're on a sort of propaganda and PR offensive to try and um, convince the rest of the world that it's actually a good thing that, that other countries should be emulating. One of the one of the really important sources that we we found was local was local media reports back in the sort of early days of this of this policy. So you'd ha you'd come across reports of like local party officials visiting these facilities, opening these facilities, and a quick assessment of what they are, and that provided a lot of detail and a lot of in many cases on the ground pictures or videos of some of the facilities. Um, yeah, other than that, a lot of what we used in Chinese language sources was the government tenders, which were useful, but often very vague, so very helpful to match up with those other reports. And also, I think it's worth talking about the role that activists have played in sort of getting information out of Xinjiang, because it's, it's a very closed place. I've heard lots of reports of locals having to get their phone completely scanned at checkpoints and everything, but you're still having groups smuggling information out. So there's a religious freedoms group in, in Italy, actually, called Bitter Winter, which has published a lot of on-the-ground footage videos and news reports of these facilities, in addition to the classic sources like Radio Free Asia. I might just follow up by asking you what these initial media reports actually said about what was going on in Xinjiang. So, Fergus, you mentioned a Phoenix uh, news piece. How were they discussing what was going on? Were they justifying it? Um, how were they actually portraying what was happening? Yeah, good question. Um, the Phoenix report from memory um, spoke about how uh, there had been pockets of extremism in Xinjiang um, and they presented um, sort of signifiers of, of what that extreme, of how that extremism manifests. So, Firstly, and most obviously, there, there have been violent um, incidents um, in the region. But then it also went a little bit further to, to um, talk about having long beards for men and for women um, wearing face coverings um, and the like as 
sort of signifiers of piety and possibly um, therefore of extremism. Um, and then the, the feature went on to talk about these um, uh, re-education um, facilities and how they were a sort of a new way of de-extremifying the population in Xinjiang. There's, a, there's actually a good article in Foreign Policy which sort of lists about, I think it's 40 to 60 things that they've, that they've recorded or that they've got information of people being detained because of. And yeah, they include really, really benign stuff. So yeah, it's a very broad church of, of offences that can sort of land you in trouble. And I think, yeah, those initial reports we're talking about were sort of equating that large list of things to extremism and referring to these centres as a way to counter that and a way to sort of specifically counter it through vocational training. So I think both of you briefly touched on how the narrative has shifted somewhat um, after initially denying the existence of any kind of facilities. In more recent months, we've seen the Chinese government at least acknowledging that they exist, but saying they're not detention or internment centres, but vocational training centres. So what does the research that you undertook actually reveal about this claim? Is there is there any evidence that the Chinese government version of the narrative has any merit? Nathan's side of the research tells um, a better story on this front. From from my perspective, as because I was looking at the sort of um, documentary evidence, I was looking for language um, that made it clear that these facilities were being used for um, transformation through education, which is this sort of euphemism that is um, that has been used. Now, since we put our report out, um, the um, French uh, Y service AFP put out uh, their own report, where their reporter Benjamin Dooley had um, been able to get access to another database that isn't out there on the sort of open wider web. Um, and the documentary evidence that he discovered showed that a lot of these facilities were ordering uh, mace, handcuffs, different types of weapons that are normally used in prisons. Um, but as I said, for our report, the, the most um, convincing evidence that these facilities are being used in a more punitive way than, than Beijing would like to um, present came through in the satellite imagery. So I think Nathan can explain to you what he saw in those um, satellite images that, that make it very clear. When you look at these facilities, it's very clear that they're not sort of in a recreational manner. You sort of see these highly securitized facilities, you see barbed wire fences, you see watchtowers, you see entire entire facilities completely barricaded. And in some cases you'll even see sort of channels of, of um, barbed wire, maybe about two or three metres across, and they lead from one building to another, when it's clear that those things are sort of to force detainees to move through this particular channel. And in some, in some satellite examples, you can even see people within, like you can see groups of people moving along these things. There are um, exercise yards outside, the mo outside most um, buildings, which are completely fenced off have no access to each other or the outside world and have no recreational equipment. So there's no playgrounds, there's no, like, weightlifting equipment there. And, yeah, I think we were talking about the sort of Chinese government's charm offensive on a lot of this. 
And shortly before our report came out, we saw a video by a Global Times journalist who visited one of these camps and he showed these um, very happy, these very happy Uyghur people dancing traditional dances, playing ping pong, playing basketball. And it's clear from the satellite imagery that those were very new things when he visited. You could see that those basketball courts got put in a few days before his actual visit. And I don't know if it was for his visit, but it definitely coincided with it. And you could even see from the video that he produced that they weren't sort of permanent courts, they were just mats. And I guess to their credit, by looking at recent satellite imagery, those courts are still, are still there, but I don't know if they're accessible to detainees or not. Um, I think another thing that's worth looking at is, yeah, other, other academics' contributions to this. And Adrian Zenz put out a, re a recent article in Jamestown um, sort of examining the budget of these regions compared to other regions. And one of his biggest findings were that in Xinjiang, sort of there was a 7.1% decrease in, the, in money spent on vocational education, whereas there was a 230, 240% increase on social, social stability management or detention centre management. And when you compare that to other samples, that's a, that's a lot more drastic in both the de de decrease in vocational training budget and the increase in social stability budgets. How effective have the government's propaganda efforts been? Do you view these as being largely targeted at a domestic audience? Um, is there any evidence that it is shaping international opinion in any way? Fergus can probably address the domestic side a bit better, but from my experience, at least in Western countries, it hasn't really stuck with anyone. You see certain, I guess, fringe elements on the internet defending it and backing it up. But when it comes to policymakers and analysts, I haven't seen it really stick for anyone in the West. But what is potentially dangerous is there are, sort of, there are third countries that have... I don't think they necessarily believe the propaganda, but they see what's happening in Xinjiang as an effective way. And you've seen sort of this transfer of technology in a lot of places. So most recently, Venezuela's national ID cards. But you've also seen sort of inklings of wanting to pick this up from countries such as Mozambique, Zimbabwe and even, even Muslim-majority countries such as Pakistan. A few, a few officials have expressed, expressed admiration towards this policy. Um, and when it comes to internally within China, it really is difficult, um, especially um, from um, my vantage point in Canberra, to know um, how regular Chinese people think about this. But one thing I... I would say is that um, when you look at Weibo, um, which is sort of China's version of Twitter, um, I did a report last year looking at um, foreign embassies and their public diplomacy efforts on Weibo. And of course, as you'd expect, there's a lot of censorship of that activity and a lot of censorship um, in general online in China. But one area that hasn't been censored as much uh, is discussion of Muslim people, Islam, and in general, unfortunately, there has been a situation online in China where Islamophobia has been given somewhat of a free reign. So unfortunately, there is fertile ground in China 
uh, in the sort of online media sphere for uh, these types of draconian punitive measures against Muslim populations to be viewed favorably. So having said that, um, as I said earlier, it's very difficult um, to know exactly what people feel about this because of the censorship um, uh, regime in China. So the report concludes that without any concerted international pressure, it seems likely the Chinese state will continue to perpetuate these human rights violations on a massive scale with impunity. What kind of international pressure, including pressure from Australia, do you think should or could be applied? Well, we've, we've already seen some action on this front. So in November at the Universal Periodic Review for China, um, where their human rights situation was uh, looked on by other countries, Australia put in um, a very comprehensive set of rec- recommendations that covered the whole gamut of um, human rights um, challenges in China, but uh, put particular emphasis on what is happening um, in Xinjiang. So that was that was a great first start. Um, and then soon after that, uh, the newly minted Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, made her first visit to China, the first visit by an Australian Foreign Minister, I believe, in three years. And she used that opportunity to bring up the situation in Xinjiang with her counterpart, Wang Yi. So that was another great thing that Australia has done on this issue. So I think um, it's really important now that Australia has made it clear that we consider what is happening in Xinjiang to be extremely concerning that Australia maintains that diplomatic um, pressure. Another thing that we've seen is that Australia joined, uh, I think it was 15 other like-minded countries in writing a letter to the authorities in Beijing requesting a meeting with uh, Chen Chuenguo, who is uh, the party secretary in Xinjiang. So all of that, I think, um, has been really great. I guess I'm a little pessimistic um, about uh, whether this is enough, really, Um, because as became very clear doing this report, when you look at these facilities, you look at the satellite imagery of them, you look at the amount of resources that that is going into this, um, it becomes very clear that um, this is something that has been set up to last a while. Um, And in a way that's sort of similar to what um, Beijing has done in the South China Sea, They've managed to change the facts on the ground before the rest of the world can really deal with it properly and really think of any um, meaningful counter strategies. Having said that, there are some um, policy ideas out there. Um, Just this week, I believe, um, there uh, have been discussions in Parliament about the possibility of introducing an Australian version of the Magnitsky Act Um, And that would enable Australia to put sanctions on individual officials from China who are behind this this policy and um, and try and bring some pressure to bear on on the Chinese officials who are really crucial to this whole project. 
I think there's a lot of pressure that Australia can add to the international scene by sort of following the lead of a few other countries. So the US specifically recently introduced the Weaker Human Rights Policy Act, and that has a lot of interesting, interesting and honestly beneficial parts to it, which include sort of reports by the State Department, the CIA and the FBI on the role that on the role that Chinese influence is having in um, in America to Uyghur people, to the intelligent estimates. And it makes a lot of this information not only public so that it's in the public discussion, but it also makes intelligence agencies and um, DFAT or the State Department sort of start to focus on these issues a, mu- lo- a lot more closely. So I think that's a good, a good step. And as Fergus mentioned, the Australian version of the Magnitsky Act is potentially there are useful. Um, and I kind of share the assessment that it might not be enough, but it might help contribute to, to sort of forcing them to adopt a slightly different perspective. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to thank you both for joining us today. I think it's extremely important that the Australian public gains more awareness of what is going on in Xinjiang. Um, often discussions are of a more general nature regarding Australia-China relations, um, particularly the arguably increased tensions in the bilateral relationship over the last couple of years. And I think this issue tends to be somewhat overlooked. So thank you both, and also to Danielle, of course, for your contribution to the research, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is the final episode of the year. The ACRI podcast will be back in 2019 to bring you more insightful discussion of the issues pertinent to the Australia-China relationship. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.